Good July, our dear subscribers. Welcome back to your own podcast. Here we are with our routine brief news mini section to start the podcast, updating you shortly about what is happening around the world of intelligent vehicles and transportation. This week we have a special guest from Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, Germany, Professor Christoph Stiller. He is the head of the Institute of the Measurement and Control Technology. He recently provided a keynote in Paris during the 30th IEEE IV conference. He will be here with us to share some of his viewpoints about autonomous vehicles and research ideas. Jeffrey will conduct the interview. Also, our dear Haluk has reviewed a book, this time about railways. As we all can agree, this is one of the main modes of transportation and needs a special attention to itself. He will talk about the book titled Detection and Estimation Research of High-Speed Railway Catenary. The author of the book is Zhi Grang Liu. This is the news mini section for the episode 53 and this is Dr. Mariam Kaveshkar with you. Have you heard about Vera, the autonomous Vera? It's going to hit the roads in Sweden. The electric truck is Volvo's trucking subsidiary and not what you might expect from a transport truck. It is totally autonomous and there is no place for the driver to sit. It is especially designed to serve in Gothenburg port of Sweden. It will actually move goods from logistics where they are packed in containers to the actual port to be loaded in the ships. They are completely autonomous, but they will be monitored from the control tower and the maximum speed of the operation will be 24 miles per hour. BMW and Daimler have gone hand in hand to provide level 4 autonomous car by 2024. They have announced in their joint statement that further talks are planned to extend the cooperation to higher levels of automation in urban areas and city centers. About 1,200 technicians from both companies will get together to fulfill this promise. The two German companies joined with nine other firms to publish a white paper on driverless technology entitled Safety First for Automated Driving. These nine other companies are Audi, Baidu, Continental, Fiat Chrysler, Here Technologies, Infineon, Intel, Volkswagen and Aptiv. They mentioned the whole goal behind this paper is to make a situation where we can prove a self-driven car is safer than a car driven by a human. After all the news and hustle around Hawaii, the giant tech got granted the mapping license for autonomous driving in China. Now it will be allowed to draw up high-definition maps to push autonomous driving. This will allow them to develop a simulation software for vehicles. Only a few companies in China have been granted this permit, including Baidu, Alibaba's AMAP and Tencent-backed Navinfo. Hawaii is trying to provide auto technology solutions in three areas 4G, 5G, telecommunication modules, for connectivity, processing chips as artificial brains for self-driving cars, and cloud services for AV development like simulations and real testing, 
said Rotating Chairman Eric Xu at this year's Auto Shanghai show in April. Some of Chinese automakers, such as Geely, are also planning to apply for the permit. Based on the collected data of the real world, using sensors of the car, we can develop a simulation. This simulation has been a useful tool to help in the development and training of autonomous vehicles. One of the best examples is Alphabet's Waymo. Recently, we had a not very strong earthquake in California. Luckily, no destruction, but it brought up a major question into our field. What is the reaction of a self-driving car facing an earthquake? When an earthquake happens, human eye catches some signs and can realize the situation and take an action. Or after the earthquake, the whole driving scenario is different. People will drive for their lives or they are going to be with their loved ones. Will they drive as a self-driving car would expect? No. So this earthquake brought up a hidden question for scientists. How a driverless car would behave? Some suggest that V2V or V2I would be helpful in this case. Whatever it is, before it's too late, there is a question for us to work on. Thank you for listening. Let's listen to Professor Haluk Aaron and the book that he has reviewed for this episode. This is the book review section for ITS podcast. Reviewed by Dr. Haluk Aran, Fırat University Elazığ, Turkey. The book title is Detection and Estimation Research of High-Speed Railway Catenary and consists of 287 pages. Published by Springer in 2017. Written by Sigang Liu. High-speed railway with electric traction is one of the front runners in the rail transit, which has several advantages such as speed, efficiency, safety, comfort and clean energy and its saving. While the train running at high speed, the electric power can be obtained by the sliding contact between the catenary and the pantograph. Contact line, messenger, dropper, supporting and suspension device are all involved in the catenary system. Therefore, timely detection and estimation of catenary play important role in safe operation in high-speed railway. The present book introduces new methods and algorithms for detections of geometric parameters of catenary, pantograph slipper fault, catenary support system, and the estimation methods of pantograph catenary contact pressure, providing statistical characteristics of pantograph catenary data, obtained by real-life engineering. The present book consists of eight chapters. Chapter 1 begins with an introduction of detection and estimation of high-speed railway catenary. Here the existing pantograph catenary detection technologies, feature catenary estimation methods, and the development of non-contact detection devices using image processing are presented. 
Chapter 2 and 3 present major test methods and statistical properties of pantograph catering contact pressure, like stationarity, periodicity, correlation, and high-order statistics. Then, the dynamic equations of pantograph catering, the influence factors, the static aerodynamic parameters, and the wave motion velocity of contact line are discussed. Chapter 4 and 5 introduce the detection correction method of contact line height and catenary geometric parameters using Kalman filtering, mean shift, and particle filter algorithms. Image features of slipper and pantograph structure are all elaborated. The pantograph slipper crack extraction based on translational parallel window in curved transform domain is given. Then, the extraction algorithm of cracks and experiment verification are presented. In Chapter 6, some new detection methods of the working state of insulators, clevises, and diagonal tube are presented. Affin invariant moments, fast fuzzy matching, and Harris corner points are adopted for insulator positioning. Grayscale statistic, wavelet singular value, Chan Vesa model, and curvelet coefficients morphology are adopted for insulator fault detection. Scale invariant feature transform and speed-up robust features are adopted for clevis matching. Histogram of oriented gradient features, curvature, half-transform, Gabor wavelet transform and second-generation curvelet are adopted for clevis fault detection. The detection of clevis pins and the diagonal tube fault detection are discussed using cascaded Adaboost classifier, detection of loosening and missing of screws from the diagonal tube. In chapters 7 and 8, the time frequency distributions of pantograph catering contact force are analyzed. The detection of contact wire irregularity in railway catering is presented. The catenary estimation based on the power spectrum density of dynamic data is discussed, like autoregressive model order for catenary data. Then, the correlations between the PSDs and some crucial operation conditions are investigated, and a cross-correlation coefficient is presented for evaluating the pantograph catenary coupling performance. In the end, the quantification method of PSD is developed. This book points out today's real-life engineering applications for detection and estimation of high-speed railway catenary. Finally, I hope the book provides an overlook for potential readers. Thank you, Haluk. Professor Jeffrey Miller from University of South California has had a friendly and interesting conversation 
with Professor Christoph Stiller from Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, Germany. About his research interests in the fields of autonomous cars and his keynote in Paris IV 2019. Let's sit back and listen to them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the ITS podcast. My name is Jeff Miller. I'm a professor uh, in computer science at the University of Southern California. And today we have uh, Professor Christoph Stiller with us. He's a professor at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology uh, in Germany and has had a, a wide-ranging career being on the executive committee and the board of governors for uh, the IEEE Intelligent Transportation Systems Society and just being an amazing researcher in propelling uh, the field of ITS forward. So, Christoph, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's a pleasure, Jeff. And uh, can you just uh, give our listeners a little background um, over the, the few decades that you've been working in the field, the changes you've seen, and kind of uh, just an overview of what you've done uh, in that time? Okay, well, that's a long time that you asked me. Um, actually, I got attracted by intelligent vehicles in a time when it was possible to do first computer vision on cars in real time and then control cars. It was people in Germany like um, Hans Dickmann's group in Munich and in Carnegie Mellon University, a group around Chuck Thorpe and um, Takeo Kanade were doing real-time computer vision and they were driving amazingly from Munich to Denmark and all across America, hands-free, feet-free. Uh, and I was amazed by that. Of course, at that time, it wasn't possible to fully drive the road um, all in uh, 100% automated driving but what happened was that they were doing something like 90-95% of automated driving but they always needed interactions from time to time and that were unpredictable when that would happen um, but it was the first vehicle automations um, that I saw and and I was amazed as a, as a PhD student when I saw that and I I have done computer vision in my own PhD and I decided to do that. And, and then I, I, I personally went to Bosch um, in the research and uh, finally got responsible for um, computer vision there for cars. Um, and it was a great time. So I learned a lot and we did a lot um, in bringing cameras to the vehicles. I remember the first cameras we built um, at amazing prices of ex <laughs> far ex um, extraordinary expensive and we were thinking well how can we bring that to a price where we can can get uh, it into real vehicles and when that finally worked um, it was like Christmas for all of us mm -hmm. and the um, and then I got a call from University of Karlsruhe um, as a professor and um, I had the opportunity to build up a team from scratch that would do automated driving here in Karlsruhe um, and I was extremely happy to do that and I still am. Um, the um, the um, state of the art today as I see it and, and that's amazing is that we can drive long distances mainly without any interaction and we have sporadic interactions. The best teams in the world have one interaction every hundred or every thousand kilometers by a test driver or by a safety driver um, who, who is on the car. 
And that, of course, is an amazing success that's been done by companies like Waymo, Uber, many others um, in the US. Uh, Japanese companies can do that. Also, we have done a Berta Benz drive from KIT in a cooperation with Daimler, um, driving the historic route of Berta Benz, the spouse of Carl Benz, who had studied mechanical engineering at our faculty at KIT. And um, Daimler, of course, who also has to do something with Carl Benz. <laughs> he gave gave the name to the Mercedes-Benz as inventor, and we drove that route automatically. And of course, that that these drives are some sort of milestones, but still we need safety drivers as of today. So there's still missing things, things challenges that we need to um, to accomplish before we really get things on the road in, in terms of fully automated driving. Yeah, and uh, I'd like to ask you about the challenges uh, a little bit later uh, in our conversation, but specifically with your group. So you mentioned that a lot of what you've done has been with respect to computer vision, which of course is a big part of uh, driverless vehicles. Does your group do more than just computer vision? Yes, naturally, we have decided to do the whole chain of automated driving. So all kind of sensor processing, LIDAR processing, even to some extent radar processing. But the main part is computer vision, our main effort, um, and LIDAR processing today, and also the planning and behavior decision. And particularly in the behavioral decision, um, there's a lot to be done. At least the lateral control can be done on just with maps if you want to follow a route and and some localization. And then you bring this information together to add safety. So so you have a system which has information for each relevant part of automated driving that stems from at least two independent sources. So for lateral control, you have maps and computer vision for objects, you have LIDAR, radar, video. And then you fuse this information and you say, okay, if any of those sensors fails, I can still drive fully automatedly with the only exception that in a product you might want to stop the car for safety reasons, because if the next sensor fails, you might drive still automatically, but with some restrictions. And if the third sensor fails, you die. So before that happens, you want to stop the car and bring it uh, and let it repair or let the sensor clean up or whatever um, is the course. Um, but I think that is the cue that you need independent systems that don't support each other in the sense of a sensor data fusion at a low level. So not in the sense that you say, I want to fuse all sensors and if they all work, um, they bring up better information than sensor alone would do but you want to fuse at a later level to make sure you have redundancy in what you in what you perceive and whatever fails you'll be safe and operational um, at least if one component component fails so if there's an insect let's say which um, flies in front of your camera and you're blinded and you don't get it away fast enough you can still at least theoretically fully drive without any restriction, you just impose the restriction that if that happens, you do want this car to stop 
for safety reasons. Right, right. And so there's been uh, a lot of debate recently on video cameras versus LiDAR. Do you think that a single one of those technologies is able to operate a driverless vehicle? Uh, of course, with redundancy, as you just mentioned. Or do you think that we are going to need both of them on vehicles? Uh, rather than having redundancy by identical sensors, so rather than having two camera systems that can run the vehicle, I would much more like to have the radar, video, and the LiDAR system to operate the video individually um, because they may have very different points of failures. If we look at automated driving and the risk of that, we're looking at, um, at a risk which must be very low. Like human drivers in Germany make, and the US will be about the same, make one fatal accident every 300 million kilometers. So that's about, um, what is that, 200 million miles of driving before you kill somebody. Hmm. That's, of course, it must be as rare. So we're talking about very rare cases um, where automated driving will make accidents because, of course, it must be safer than humans. And in those rare cases, um, they are not predictable. You can't test that because um, you will only get so many kilometers after you're in the market. Like you, you need, um, I, I would guess, billions of kilometers of testing data um, before you can, with, without any accident, before you can be safe, sure that you um, are safe enough. And then you will keep improving and improving. So the accidents that happens are really wired situations, what I expect. Right. So unexpected types of obstacles, completely unexpected behavior. And then I hope that with different sensor types, we have a much higher chance than to, to somehow detect that's an obstacle. And we somehow have to avoid it, even if even those sensor types won't understand what kind of obstacle it is. We still see, well, that's something moving and video and LiDAR and radar have very different perception capabilities. And hopefully at least one of those sensors sees the obstacles and can predict coarsely what it does or recognize it, that it behaves very unexpectedly and therefore finds the vehicle finds an appropriate behavior. Right. Yeah. And I, I assume with your group having created uh, a driverless vehicle that you've yourself been a passenger or an occupant of one. Is that correct? Yes. And the passenger seat is always free. <laughs> and so what what is your opinion on how we can get user acceptance of the technology when at first of course it is scary not having control of the vehicle yes that's right i, be, I believe one important point is to become transparent there are many people doing human machine interfaces for automated driving Actually, we are not expert in that field, but I know many people doing it. And what I learned from them is that you need to explain the passenger what your car is doing, and you have to give him some possibility to change 
the driving and the extreme maneuvers. So I'm not a fan of um, automated vehicles which have no chance to manipulate the way it is driving. So at least you must be able to put a cautious, drive more cautious button or uh, so to slow down the vehicle or you must be able um, even if the car is too slow to initiate an overtaking maneuver um, somehow or to take over the um, driving yourself um, if you want. So I believe steering wheel less cars may not be the near future at least. Um, and we need to educate people. There's still a, in, in the market introduction, there seems to be uncertainty whether you have a disruptive market introduction or an evolutionary market introduction. Um, it seems that some companies believe you build an automated vehicle from scratch, which may not drive automated in every situation, but you, you don't start with highway driving, but you may uh, start with last city, last mile driving in the city. And then, but you bring that in fully autonomous and autonomously from the first moment and educate people by getting um, a good feeling for that. It is driving slow, so you don't feel as endangered as you might do on the highway um, when where the velocity is much faster. Um, and once you gained enough confidence in the system from the user side, you um, go to extended regions where you might do some faster driving and someday you cover the whole world. So you start with automated driving in a small region and expand the domain of operation. Whereas the evolutionary step uh, path would be you start with the cars that you have today, bring in more and more level two driver assistance systems, which helps the driver like ACC or emergency braking. Um, then the next step, um, which is announced by many car manufacturers will be automated driving on highway level three. So you're allowed to read a newspaper or magazine or email as a driver um, on highways, but only on highways. So you have to drive manually on the highway and manually off the highway. And level three means that you still have to be able to intervene in a reasonable amount of time, let's say 30 seconds, just to, just to give a number. Um, so if the car finds out there is an unexpected um, um, construction site on the highway, which is not fully mapped yet, then the vehicle will say, look, we are like one or two kilometers in front of that site, um, um, which is signaled by radio and um, automated driving is not allowed here. So put away the email, the magazine, mm -hmm. take over the drive, the steering wheel and drive. And then you have a, you have a couple of seconds um, to take over and um, manually drive through the unmapped construction site and afterwards you you can give back the control to the vehicle again that's that's um, that's an evolutionary path so you have a normal car which gets more and more automated functions and um, but you still need a driver in the in the driver's seat Right. who's not drunk, not sleeping. You can do side work, but not any side work. So you cannot not do something which prevents you from taking over control in a reasonable time afterwards. Right. Yeah. And that would be great to have more 
publicity, news articles, and so on about that? Because it seems like most of what I see coming out in the press is jumping all the way to removing the steering wheel from the vehicle, which seems really scary this early on. Yes, it depends on the function. I, I believe there's two different passes. I cannot say which of the passes will actually lead to the result that we have automated cars on the road as a normal case. Maybe it's even a combination of both, um, as so often chooses in between two extremes. Um, but we'll see how that evolves. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this year at the Intelligent Vehicle Symposium, uh, you gave uh, a keynote address. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was talking about many things that we have just discussed. So I was talking about what is actually missing in automated driving. And um, I claimed that while automated driving is feasible today, over even over long distances, but we still need a safety driver or we need to drive in restricted areas which are restricted to public traffic participants, so basically a test site. Um, and we only have limited cooperation with others. That's the, my second point. Um, the car manufacturers try to build automated vehicles that do not cooperate too much with others, so they do not um, 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 communicate what they see to other vehicles, they do not um, negotiate trajectories with other vehicles, and I think that will be one of the um, big merits of automated vehicles, that um, cars should do that. Um, and that's something that um, since, if there is no business case yet, um, um, this needs to be done by university research or any other public research. And um, for the challenges that I um, see is behavioral safety, so we need to to say what is safe enough for vehicles. There is no absolute safety, though even with full automated vehicles, we will have still some fatal accidents, but hopefully the number of accidents will be much lower than the number of accidents that we have today. Um, but they'll never go to zero unless you wait infinitely long. To introduce them in the market, which of course we don't want. And my question is, when do we introduce them? That's if they, when they are two times safer, when they are ten times safer, when they have. Do we need to wait until we get one thousandth of the number of accidents that we have today? We actually don't know that right now. What what is the safety improvement factor that we need before we are allowed to introduce? Um, and that's a that's a. Um, discussion that actually the public should also be involved in um, because it will affect their safety and it will affect um, their usage of this technology. Um, and um, in planning, I believe what is needed um, is that we plan more on the what could ha happen reasoning. So right now or in the, in the past, we tried to do perception as good as possible. And then we said, okay, this is all we see. And and something that we don't see, we believe that exists. In, in the um, safe car, I believe we should argue a different way. We should say, okay, if we don't see something, what could be there? Mm -hmm. 
and um, what could be in the worst case, under what circumstances would I do an accident? There are always conditions under which we build accidents, like when we overtake a truck on a highway and the truck wants to harm us and steers into us, it will do it. And we have no chance doing that. So passing by a truck is a proof of trust that you have in the driver of the trust of the truck. And um, but obviously humans accept that risk, um, and it rarely happens that some trucks driving to gas on the side on the on the right. um, lane aside. And and we need to to formally identify what assumptions are possible for automated cars like trucks on the other lanes don't drive into us without a reason um, and what distances in longitudinal and um, horizontal direction are safe enough how fast can we can we pass by a pedestrian I mean, theoretically every pedestrian could jump on the road suddenly um, just when we pass by but again we trust that won't happen Unless it's a child, if it's when it's a child, we drive slower when we when we see them jumping around on the sideway. So, um, this is things that um, we have to formalize to bring into automated cars. Yeah. It is sort of common sense, common, common accepted driving safety that we have to bring into formal um, formulas, um, which allows us to bring cars which are safe enough given those rules really apply yeah and that kind of uh segues into my next question which we we alluded to earlier about the challenges that are still outstanding for driverless vehicles so you mentioned a good one there of just unpredictable behavior of other drivers and pedestrians and any any object that especially with with computer vision with perception that we can detect that something is there but we can't necessarily predict what's going to what it's going to do in the future so with that and what other challenges do you see that we need to overcome before we should have driverless vehicles on the road yeah one uh, there are many things one is tactical information and um, needs to be found so I believe you can place a lot of tactical information and maps. So who has right of ways uh, is something which is very difficult for even for computer vision to see, to perceive, and to um, perceive reliable, reliably. So if you like, if you have a good computer vision system which um, makes a fault only every ten thousand times, and it means that in average after ten thousand intersections you violate the um, right of way which is far more than humans do. So um, um, we need to be much um, more certain, but for train systems, that is extremely challenging, in particular as traffic situations um, can vary so much. They're very complex. And uh, even for humans, it's extremely difficult to get the tactical information to drive in other countries. Like if uh, when I drive in US, um, there are some rules which we don't have in Germany, and the same would be happening for you when you drive in Germany. You'll find some rules, some typical behavior which doesn't appear in the US. Um, and a very simple be um, example is the behavior to bicyclists is very different in Germany than it is in, in the US um, from cars. 
Um, the second part is uncertainty due to occlusions and the perception is highest. So, so if you have occluding obstacles like parked vans, um, you don't know whether or not some pedestrian walks out behind that. That's a second challenge that uh, we really have to, to face. And the last you already mentioned um, that I see is the future trajectory and the intent of others. That's something which is extremely hard to predict. And those uncertainties, um, in my opinion, dominate over the um, uncertainty that we have in perception, which also exists, but they're not as large as the uncertainty um, from tactics, from occlusions, and from um, prediction. Mm -hmm. And um, a question that I always like to, to ask uh, veterans in the field, the experts who have been around for a while, let's say that there is uh, a student who's about to graduate and has a, a lot of interest in this field. What advice would you give him or her for what to look into as you see as a hot topic in the future? Okay, I can imagine many hot topics. One thing is how can deep learning um, gave a lot of progress in, in the recent years. Um, and for many, perception tasks is the best that we have, like like pedestrian um, detection is clearly um, done best by deep learning methods. And one thing that I would uh, like to see is how can we prove anything for deep learning methods? So how can you can you can you prove some basic characteristics of a system which is done by deep learning so that you can say okay even if I can typically not may not be able to see all pedestrians in this region. I'm sure there's no pedestrian, so I can drive. At one thing, so provable AI or explainable AI. That's that's something that I believe is will be a challenge, which will be approached in the next years. And another one is safe planning. Safe planning. So how can you prove that whatever you do is safe? under some assumptions, of course, um, that, that you need to explicitly impose. That will be two PhD theses that I would love to see, and I, I believe there will be more than two PhD theses before um, this, these problems are solved, actually. Okay, great. And uh, my last question for you here before we wrap up. Um, right now, we are in mid-2019. If you had to predict when you think the first fully automated vehicle would be sold on the consumer market, what would your best prediction be? Okay, we need to define, I need to specify, so let's say a vehicle which drives from anybody's home to a couple of hundred kilometers, couple of hundred miles away, taking highway, going through cities, um, through any typical area that we have in US or Europe or, or Asia, then my prediction would be 20 years. If if the um, if you would ask me, well, is the first automated function vehicles, I would say, well, that's already today, like you can have automated parking, you can have automation on highway or automated last mile. 
um, either today or in a very few years, so less than two years, definitely all of those functions. But uh, but, but you asked me about fully automated, and, right. and that means covering all situations, and I believe that will take 20 years. We still have a long way to go. But in between those 20 years, there will be many, many um, functions, automated functions that enter the market. So it is an exciting world that we live in, and we'll see a lot of uh, amazing functions entering the market in this time period. Great. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree with that. We're going to see more of these uh, functions embedded in vehicles, but it's probably not going to happen as some are predicting within the next few years that we're going to have this fully autonomous vehicle. No steering wheel, no brake, no gas. You get in, you type in your location, and off you go. Uh, we still yeah, have a little ways before we get to that. Okay, well, great. Christoph, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing all of the great things that are coming out of your research group uh, in the future. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Jeff. It was a pleasure, as always, speaking to you. Um, and goodbye. All right. Thank you, Professor Stiller, for being our guest. Thank you, Jeffrey. Dear listeners, let me thank you for being with us. Don't forget to share and subscribe and check out our other media for other news. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Intelligent Transportation System Society. This was Dr. Mayam Kavashkar from IEEE ITS Society.